I think like anything in life, when you work on your craft, you're not going to be really good the first few years. It takes consistent practice, maybe 10,000 hours. And I think the first, you know, even now, I still know that it can get better. I still feel like I haven't really found my flow yet. I've gotten better since the early episodes. Of course, I'm a lot more comfortable and I find it easier to get, you know, established rapport with my guests and try to just make it very, you know, very valuable for the audience too, but it's still not at the level of the podcast that I'm listening to that I really enjoy. You know, I listen to Freakonomics, Hidden Brain, My First mm-hmm. Million, and I'm kind of, which I shouldn't, but I'm kind of comparing, you know, my podcast to theirs. You're listening to Foreign Founders, where we tell stories of immigrant and international founders who are working tirelessly to shape the future. We share stories of their upbringing, culture, and background and explore the companies and products they're building. We want to highlight these founders because these are stories that are often not told. Thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to have my guest today, Eric Melcher. He interviews European startup founders on his Innovators Can Laugh podcast. He's a self-described mediocre tennis player and a Texan living in Romania. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, let's get started with the first question. What's your background? Where'd you grow up? Ah, Houston, Texas. I guess you would say like lower middle class. <laughs> Probably the first guest has ever said anything like that. But I had a background that was kind of like Huckleberry Finn, but also living in the city because my parents were divorced. And so I had the best of both worlds. I mean, one weekend I'd be with my BB gun catching crawfish. <laughs> and the next weekend I'd be playing basketball and hoops with the inner city kids and at the arcade playing Street Fighter. It was a really fun childhood, I guess you would say. But yeah, Houston is where I was grew up and where I lived most of my life until my early 20s. And then where'd you go in your early 20s? Yeah. So I got this job, a colleague of mine, undergrad at University of Houston downtown, worked for Continental Airlines. And he said, Eric, my department is hiring. You want to interview? And this was like a big company. Andy, I had always waited tables, right? I was an undergrad working, going to school, but my background was just entirely, you know, waiting tables. So of of course I went to go interview. I didn't think I would get the job, but I got it. And the first week I was there, some of my colleagues, they said, Hey, you want to go with us tomorrow to New Orleans? And I said, okay, you're going to stay the weekend. They go, no, we're going to fly out there the first flight on Saturday morning and come back on the last flight. Yes. You're just going for the day. And they're like, yeah, come with us. So this was like really strange to me. And I went with them and we had the best time. I mean, we had so much fun. Of course, we had some hurricanes on Bourbon Street. I forgot the place, but you know, you walk <laughs> around there on the streets, like at the only city where you can do that in America. Yep. And I was hooked. I was hooked. The next weekend, I went with another colleague to Chicago just for the day. And I was in Sears Tower and Navy Pier, Pizzeria Uno, came back that night. And that just opened up a new world for me because I had never done much traveling. My parents didn't really travel. We didn't go on exotic vacations when we were kids, yeah. come from a humble background. But working at the airlines, going on a domestic trip was like $20 and going on an international trip was around $150. And so I got hooked and me and my buddy, because if you're not married, you can have like this buddy, I call it a buddy pass. We would yeah. go to the airport on a Friday and just look. Look at the screens to figure out which flight can we try and get on. We didn't have no, no I mean, there was no planning. Yeah, I never forget one time we were on a flight. I think it was to Mexico. Before they closed the door, the hostess 
came to me and she said, I'm sorry, but you have to get off a paying customer a ride. And so me and my friend, I said, hey, we got to get off. You know, paying customer came. And so we're, we're getting our luggage from the overhead and walking back to the front of the plane. And meanwhile, you have the other flight attendant saying, yeah, this plane is bound for uh, Guanajuato, Mexico. If this is not your flight, you need to get off. And so we heard people like some passengers, one passenger said, oh, pendejo, which means like stupid because they thought that, you know, we had gotten on the wrong plane, but that wasn't the case. And just <laughs> going back into the terminal and looking at where can we fly to next? Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's try this place. And we would go out another plane, but I wouldn't trade that for the world. I made absolutely hardly any money. My check every two weeks was something ridiculous, like $700. But yeah. I got to see the world and have experiences that I wouldn't trade for all the money in the world. How awesome was Eric's storytelling there? You can listen to more of Eric through his podcast, Innovators Can Laugh. I've linked them in the show notes, or you can go to www.innovatorscanlaugh.com. I think the episode Beauty Startup is Translating Science with Alexandrina is really funny. Another cool news for 2024 is that Ford Founders is teaming up with Eric's company to join the network of B2B podcast. So you'll hear more about them in the future. Now back to the episode. And you said you didn't grow up having these experiences. What did your parents do? Well, you know, they had me when I was very young. I think my mom was 18. My dad was 21. And my mm -hmm. dad, he actually ended up getting a pretty good job as a computer programmer and programming Cobot, which was one of the first mainframe languages. He had a pretty decent job. And then my mom had a really good job too, even though they didn't have college degrees. And she was in financial, not a financial advisor, but people who support stockbrokers. And she took her mm -hmm. series A or can't remember the various tests that she had to pass. And they just believed that if I was going to have a chance in having you know, a good life, that I needed to go to good schools. And so they sent me to Catholic school, which kind of backfired. And their part, and I don't think they, they didn't even realize it. And they wanted me to go to college. And yeah. so, but we, you know, again, they divorced when I was only six, six or seven, but mm -hmm. we didn't have a lot of the normal things that I think your typical American family would have in terms of like going on vacation and mm -hmm. things like that. I remember getting my first job at the age of 14 because my mom couldn't afford a Nintendo game for me. And so mm -hmm. I started working and making $3.50 an hour because I really wanted to buy a Nintendo set and get a Nintendo game. And yeah. I worked all summer. And One kid I, doesn't want to get a <laughs> Nintendo game, you know? All right, man. I know. I still turn my head whenever I hear like the more Super Mario Brothers, like, you know, music in the background. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you loved the movie when it came out. That's like nostalgic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I took my son. He's five. And he loved it. And I, of course, I loved it too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So... Super humble beginnings. Parents were both working. You had, you know, you start working when you're 14. And then at 20, you had this awesome experience of finally being able to leave Houston and travel the world. What happened after that? Yeah. So that was in my, I guess you would say early to mid 20s when I was at the airline. And mm -hmm. I finally graduated from college with a bachelor's in marketing. And so mm -hmm. I loved marketing. It was, I felt it was something that I was really good at. And so I tried to get a job in marketing in the marketing department at Continental, at the company I was mm -hmm. working at. And I networked and I met with different people. I even met the chief marketing officer. And I just, for the life of me, nobody would hire me because I was working in the, the accounting department. 
and I didn't have a background. I didn't do any sort of thing that was marketing despite working at that company. And so mm -hmm. I was there for four years and two years after graduating. And I thought, this is not the kind of career that I want. And I was having no success inside the company, nor getting interviews anywhere else that I was applying in Houston. And so I had two friends that had recently moved to New York City. One transferred with their job. She was working at Chase Bank. And the other one, he transferred to a university there for his degree, a master's degree. And they said, Eric, if you want to come move in with us, we've got an extra bedroom. And I thought, okay, you know, let me go give it a shot. I'm not having any success here. And I knew that I was really going to miss traveling. So if I can't really travel very cheap anymore, the next best thing was to go live in New York City. And so yeah. <laughs> I worked for an entire year. I worked for two jobs. So I had my job during the daytime, which was Continental. I would go in from mm -hmm. 6.30 a.m. to about 3 o'clock p.m. And then I'd rush home, change, and then I would go wait tables at a restaurant. And I did that for over a year. And I was able to save, I think, something like six or $7,000 enough to like cover my expenses and everything for a few months so that yeah. when I got to New York, I would have, you know, I wouldn't be uh, hard pressed to like hurry up and get a job. So that's what I did. Yeah. And I bet you were tired, like doing it seven days a week. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't really a day that I had off. Once I got there, yeah. I couldn't get a job because I go to a couple of interviews and they're like, you've got no marketing background. And so within a couple of months, I realized, okay, I need to start waiting tables. This is something I know how to do. And I was waiting tables yeah. at Park Avalon, which was near Union Square, pretty nice restaurant. And then I finally just got a non-paid internship and it was at a small digital agency in Soho. And I learned okay. a lot there. That's what I needed. I needed to like get a resume, get some credentials. And so I started working there and then I began pursuing an MBA at Pace University and I started going there as well. So I was probably doing yeah. that about a year until I got my first break. Yeah. So even though people weren't hiring you as a marketer, you kept on going and you kept on trying to find those opportunities and eventually found this agency opportunity that gave you like a foot in the door into the marketing world. Yeah. I wrote a letter to the owner and I can't even remember what I said, but he invited me to come meet and they were looking for somebody young and hungry and obviously they don't want to pay a lot. So yeah. <laughs> I guess it was a win-win for both parties. And uh, I started and I learned a lot. I mean, and I was actually able to bring some things to the table that they weren't doing. And, and I'll never forget when I learned how to do pivot tables in my one of my classes in my MBA program, I thought it was the most amazing thing. And so I brought that to the digital agency and I'm like, this is how we should be looking at the data because we were doing media buys. And right. I was able to sort the American Express campaign data by the regions that we were targeting and by the different publishers. And I could like create these different pivot tables. And they were just so fascinated because they weren't doing anything like that. And it, when we had these client meetings, we were able to show the data in like very, you know, effective ways. And so I became a pretty valuable asset to the team. But I only stayed with them a year because then I got another break going to yeah. a larger media agency. And I think I increased my salary, I kid you not, by like 30000 or more dollars because wow. I wasn't really making anything at the small agency. They were underpaying me. They knew it. I later eventually knew it too. And that's when I realized, okay, I've got some experience under my belt. I'm doing an MBA right now. And let me go ahead and start applying for these other positions that I was seeing. And yeah. I got another break. You're stacking all those things together. What year was this? The this first is agency. probably 2006. Yeah, this is like 2006. 
You know what's fascinating? So I built my career around user acquisition, you know, especially like mobile and a lot of best people I've worked with in that space are all finance backgrounds because what we're doing is basically like using analysis to buy media, right? And then analyze yeah. media and then depending like what levers we can pull and push and which channels we can do it. You're basically doing it a good eight years before I even got into that realm, super early in pioneering a lot of these like what we take it as best practices now. It's like, okay, you spend a dollar, then you should definitely get more than a dollar back when you're measuring all that in a given period of time. Yeah, the small agency was, I think American Express, the agency wasn't their main agency. They just knew somebody yeah. at Amex that gave them a deal. And I think American Express, it was spending maybe forty or $50,000 a month in media buy. Mm -hmm. After six months, once I got there, I yeah. kid you not, I was writing insertion orders for a hundred thousand plus, they were doing a million dollars plus in media buys with us because yeah. we were able to slice and dice the data. We realized that we were getting a much higher conversion rate by really advertising the specific ad unit, which happened to be pop-ups. And then the second yeah. best was like <laughs> squares, but then yeah. really in the main region was in the Northeast or in the East coast. And so yeah. we started tagging the different ads by region. And then also the type of publisher. So once we narrowed it down by, okay, we're getting a lot bigger return in the East Coast. Let's allocate the majority of budget there. Then we started yeah. uh, segmenting through publishers and we realized, okay, we should stop advertising in sports because we're not getting a return there. And we really focused yeah. on like finance, tech, and maybe a couple of other segments. And we got yeah. our CPA from like, I think it was $1,500 down to like something that's absurd, like $100. You know, wow. And for American for credit, Express, for finance, for yes. financial products. That's crazy. Yes. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. Man, squares, pop-ups. That's like, <laughs> yeah. The, the, interstitials. The, yeah, interstitials. <laughs> but you're not in New York anymore, Eric. You're living Texan in Romania. How'd you yeah. get all the way to Eastern Europe? Yeah. So I was in New York for about seven years. I intended to just be there for about three or four years, but once yeah. you're, you know, that city just time flies by, but I was ready to come <laughs> home and I didn't want to stay there because the cost of living is so high. I just can't fathom at that time spending half a million dollars on a studio. And in mm -hmm. Texas at that time for half a million dollars, you can live in practically, you know, not a mansion, but a pretty big, maybe 3,000 square foot house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? I've seen on Zillow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to stay here. And I saw this job posting and this agency in Romania was looking for Westerners or expats to come mm -hmm. work at their agency for about a year. And I thought, this is really interesting. And I looked up the position and it was basically just educating their clients on why they should invest more in digital media, you know, online display advertising and Google. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm not ready to go back home to Houston, but I'm ready to leave New York. And I'm the adventurous type of person. I thought, yeah. why not? And so I applied and they offered me the position. And there was maybe three people from the UK one person from Canada and myself. And so we were like the five expats at this large agency. It was like the largest media agency in Romania. And so I was there for about a year and my assignment ended. And then I came back to Texas. Toward the end of that year, though, I did meet a special person and we stayed in touch and I flew back a few times. And then I finally convinced her to move to Houston. I lied to her and I told her Houston was like this beautiful cosmopolitan city. <laughs> she would love it. It was like very European. I bought a little Aprilia scooter 
for her to try to make it Did as you European. Did say it was very European? <laughs> I said it's very cosmopolitan. <laughs> <laughs> to try it out, she moved and it worked out because we ended up getting married a couple of years later and having a couple of kids. And we were in Houston for about, I don't know, 10 years until COVID happened. Mm-hmm. And with a newborn and a two-year-old trying to juggle work and the kids at the same time because the daycares were closed and mm-hmm. my parents weren't retired yet. And it was just very difficult. And her mom basically said, hey, if you guys come to Bucharest, I can help out with the kids. Mm-hmm. And we, we were like, haha. And the more we thought about it, we listed the pros and cons and it just made a lot of sense. I mean, the pros mm-hmm. were the weather was a lot nicer than it was in Houston because Houston is very hot and humid for the majority of the year. Cost mm-hmm. of living is better. There's a lot more things to do. I mean, you could be in the mountains or the sea like in three mm-hmm. hours. It's a lot safer. And once I had kids, I really started thinking about, you know, gun violence and things like that. Whereas in Romania, much safer. I don't have to worry about that. And so we thought about it and we're like, well, if we can work remote, then why not? And so my wife's company, they gave the green light and she was Mm -hmm. able to move here and still, you know, work for her job. And that was like the only hurdle It's like, if they, if they say, yeah, then we can do this. And it doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but yeah, that was a little more than three years ago when we made that transition. Yeah. Do you speak the language? Do you speak Romanian? I'm sure through, you know, your wife's family, you understand like the culture and stuff, but how was the transition for you and your family who's never been living there? Yeah. For my kids, it's it was pretty good because my son was pretty young. He was only three. My daughter wasn't even one yet. And I understand a lot of the language. I don't speak it fluently, but I can kind of understand, you know, the conversation. I can say a few things. But yeah, the transition was really hard for, I think, all of us, especially the first year because my wife was still working North American hours. And so from like 5 p.m. to like midnight, we hardly saw her. And she was so sleepy in the morning that we really didn't see her in the morning, or at least the kids didn't see her in the morning. And so I was sort of like Mr. Mom that entire first year. Plus, I'm trying to like find work. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a network. And so that was a little bit frustrating trying to, you know, find something to do. Because, you know, as a parent, as a husband, as a partner, you want to help provide and support the family. And Mm -hmm. the first, I would say the first six months were really difficult, but mostly because I just didn't see my wife. And that Mm -hmm. took a toll on the marriage, especially the first year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With the transition like that too, it's hard for everyone. So you were looking for job, you were looking for roles. How did the company that you have, Innovators Can Laugh, which we'll talk about in a little bit, come about? Yeah. So when I got here, I began doing some pro bono work for a few tech companies. Mm -hmm. And what I was doing was analyzing the entire customer journey for a few startups here based in Romania. And this Mm -hmm. is like 60 or 70 slides of PowerPoint deck and just letting them know, here's where I found moments where I think there's friction or where the customer Mm -hmm. may be confused. And I would look at their email communication. I'm like, hey, I think this could be improved or this didn't make sense. I think you Mm -hmm. have a missed opportunity here because you don't have any testimonials, but you've got great testimonials, but you're not leveraging them. And I did this, I think, for three different companies. and, And all I asked was, you know, can you give me a good testimonial, put it on LinkedIn? And if you know anybody else, you know, let them know that I'm available or whatever. One of them said, hey, come work with us as a contractor. And I did during one of the team meetings, because there was people from all over, from Turkey, from China, from India, Romania. I was just asked these like funny questions like, hey, you know, in your country, like what's one of the worst things that you eat that your family enjoys, but you don't like? 
And it was just cracking everybody up because people would be like, oh, there's this jello and there's these bones in there and I can't stand <laughs> it, but my aunt makes it all the time. And, yeah. and, you know, it got people talking, whereas there wasn't really that kind of camaraderie before. And every week yeah. during the meetings, I would get people talking and laughing and I was enjoying it. And one of the people said, hey, you should like interview foreigners on a podcast or something. And it stuck with me. And I thought, hmm. heck, why not? And so that's what I do. I interview European founders on my podcast and it's really a casual conversation. And that's yeah. how it started. We've already got about 120 episodes published now. Wow. Where'd you find your first European startup founders on the program? Well, two of them were the companies that I did the pro bono work for. Okay. So yeah. yeah. And then the other ones were just me pitching, looking at different media sources or blogs or websites about startups based in Romania and just sending yeah. like a code email or a message on LinkedIn and pitching them. And I think the yeah. first season, my success rate for getting a guest on was somewhere around 25%. After, you know, a hundred episodes, you're kind of established already. Now, I think most of the people that come on are like referrals or people that are pitching Probably me. inbound was yeah. thinking, yeah. Yeah, people That's pitching incredible. me. This is so many questions because as a podcaster, but the Romanian ecosystem, the startup ecosystem that you're talking about and the founders you're talking to, what makes the Romanian ecosystem so special in your opinion after doing like 120 plus episodes? They invested a lot of resources towards STEM. And mm -hmm. so you always constantly see like the young high school kids winning some science competition or robotics competition. And I'm talking about globally. And so there's always been that support. There's a mm -hmm. lot of women founders, a lot more than I think in most European countries, which you mm -hmm. don't really see that often. And I know because I've interviewed founders and I've gone into specific countries like Hungary or you know somewhere else like Lithuania. And it's like, wow, I was only able to get like three female founders, but I, the majority are men. Whereas in yeah. Romania, I think half of all my guests have been female, if not more. Wow. Yeah. So I think that's what makes it so special. And there's some really good schools here, especially in Cluj. There's yeah. a lot of good tech talent there, especially around AI and cybersecurity. Yeah. They're just, you know, very, very good talent. Yeah. Do you ask the female founders why they think... Romania has a lot more of the more female founders as a percentage. I've never really asked them that question. I always yeah. try to ask like, hey, who is a big influence on you? Maybe a good mentor, yeah. somebody, you know, in a lot of cases, it mostly goes back to the parents. And I think that's for every founder, you know, the yeah. parents always had some sort of influence like, hey, you know, try to create your own thing or, you know, if you have an idea for something, go for it. And that's really the root of a lot of the entrepreneurs that I interview is it goes back to their parents. Yeah, no, I agree. That's why in the beginning, I was asking you a lot of questions about like your family and upbringing as well. If you can figure out why there's a lot more women founders in Romania, that would be a fascinating thing to like find the root cause of, <laughs> because I feel like if you can apply that to so many different like ecosystems, that would be incredible. You know, the yeah, I'll try to it. get to the root for you. Yeah. That'll be awesome. So someone at work, when you're doing pro bono work, just casually mentioned that you should interview different founders, different about their culture or how they grew up. And then you start doing it. At what point, how many episodes in did you realize that it was a thing that you wanted to continue doing? Oh, well, I wasn't satisfied with the early recordings. And I just knew that, hey, I really want to get better at this. And I know I can get better at this. And it's not at the yeah. level that I know it could be. Yeah. And I think like anything in life, when you work on your craft, 
you're not going to be really good the first few years. It takes consistent practice, maybe 10,000 hours. And I think the first, you know, even now, I still know that it can get better. I still feel like I haven't really found my flow yet. I've gotten better since the early episodes, of course. I'm yeah. a lot more comfortable and I find it easier to get, you know, established rapport with my guests and try to just make it very, you know, very valuable for the audience too. But it's still not at the level of the podcast that I'm listening to that I really enjoy. You know, I listen to Freakonomics, Hidden Brain, My First mm -hmm. Million, and I'm kind of, which I shouldn't, but I'm kind of comparing, you know, my podcast to theirs. And I feel like that all the time. Yeah. And all it's like, time. you know, you feel like crap, but I think as long as you're getting better and you're improving, you know, you shouldn't really beat yourself up. But I realized that probably as I started getting closer to year two, that I wanted to go mm -hmm. from amateur to professional. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? Well, you know, that means for one, making a good show, obviously, but there were certain things that I had to do to really ensure it was a good show. So for example, if I do a recording and if I listen to that recording over and there's no laughing, like I'm not laughing at one point or the guest is not, then I won't publish it because the title of the show is Innovators Can Laugh, right? right? So, you know, there's certain things now that I now won't interview people that I'm generally not interested in. Yeah. You know, it could be a really popular, you know, startup founder who's got the most next best innovation. But if I'm not really interested in what they're making or him as a person yeah. or she as a person, I'm probably not going to have him on the show. Because that matters. The guests, they know. They know whether or not the host is really interested in the subject. So, you know, there's things now that I wish I would have done earlier, but it took a while to learn these lessons, but I'm starting to apply them now and get make the show even better and better, I think. Yeah. So year two is becoming better, professionalizing innovators can laugh. What comes next? What are you doing, you know, outside of getting the right guests, improving content? How are you making this into a business? Yeah. So initially I thought, well, let me try to get a sponsorship, right? And the download numbers for my podcast, they're nothing stream. They're nothing to write home about, but I think that's for most B2B podcasts. And so just one day it realized that why am I trying to spend a lot of effort to get a sponsor when if I can collectively sort of like aggregate all the supply that's available, I know a lot of other B&B podcasters and mm -hmm. we all have audiences that are the same audiences that a lot of tech companies are trying to market to. What if yeah. I were to go to one of these tech companies or a potential advertiser and say, hey, we can help open doors that otherwise you couldn't reach. We can help mm -hmm. be a part you know, of the daily lives of your current customers and future customers because combined, you know, we've got a reach of 50,000 people through our podcast, you know, another 50,000 through our newsletters. Right. So if you work with me and do a sponsorship deal, it's not just my, it's not just innovators can laugh, but you're yeah. also going to be sponsoring 10 or, you know, 12 other podcasters that can get that same message out. I think it's at a very appealing, you know, for potential brands that want to experiment with podcasting. I felt like it was a great idea. And all the mm -hmm. podcasters that are under the umbrella that are like, yeah, this is pretty cool. I mean, I hear that they've been wanting to try to get some kind of revenue for their podcast. Either they've been unsuccessful or they feel like they just don't have enough downloads or they just don't have the right. time. And it's like, well, let me do that work for you. I mean, there's no risk. I'm paying you. If we score a sponsorship yeah. deal, you're going to make money. Otherwise, there's really no risk. 
Yeah, I think it's right in terms of a lot of podcasts just don't reach that numbers that you might see in like a blog or digital channel, digital like video or text or image channels. But the difference between podcast listeners is how deep they listen or like how long they listen or how engaged they are throughout the conversation. And I think that is a different value set that is given to like potential advertisers. It's just hard for us. Like when we have what sub 50 downloads per episode, we're like in a normal world, you can't monetize sub 50 via ads. Mm -hmm. So I think what you're doing is super smart. Yeah. I mean, you can learn a lot about somebody for being in their ear 30 minutes. And that's yeah. why I think it's probably the most powerful medium because many times when you're listening to a podcast, you're doing it while you're maybe driving or working out and you're not really multitasking yeah. and you're really listening to the conversation at hand. Yeah. And once you start listening to a podcast repeatedly, it's because you enjoy the host, you enjoy the content. And therefore, you know, whatever the host recommends, you tend to think, okay, that's legit. You know, I trust yeah. this person. I like, you know, what he or she says. I like their content. And so I read so many studies now where it's a more powerful medium to get your message across more powerful than TV or even social media. Yeah, I agree. And the My First Million guys also agree a lot about, you know, you're always in people's ears and they get, you know, your audience acts the way that you want to whenever you do anything with them. Are you ready for the last couple of questions, Eric? Let's do it. Cool. For those who want to go to Romania and potentially start their own company there, what advice do you have? You know, the startup culture, if they're in tech or SaaS, I would say that startup culture is very welcoming. There's a lot of different accelerators, a lot of different events throughout the year. I would say mingle, start building relationships with those people, get in touch with me, and I could introduce you to a lot of those people in the tech scene or in startup scene. Mm -hmm. I think it's been very welcoming for me, and I've gotten to know a lot of people over the past couple of years. A lot of it, of course, is through the podcast. The people in the ecosystem are generally nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, really talented, and focused on tech and SaaS, you think? Yeah. yeah, I would say tech and SaaS, AI, cybersecurity, those seem to be the big ones. E-commerce, I would say, is, is up there too. Yeah, and cost of living is cheaper than most places, big cities in the U.S.? Oh, cheapest, I think, in the European countries. I think for digital nomads, it's the cheapest. I was yeah. reading that probably... You know, around a thousand euro, you could probably, you know, live, get a, an apartment, pay for all your groceries. Obviously, if you have a certain lifestyle, then, you know, a thousand euros is not going to be enough for you. But yeah. it's definitely a lot cheaper, three times cheaper than some of the bigger cities like Paris and London or Berlin. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. And then <laughs> the last question is, you know, I asked this to all my guests. What are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about the Innovators Can Laugh B2B podcast media network. And the reason why, yeah, it's my new business, but the reason why is because I have an opportunity to help other people, not just clients, but help other people that are in a very similar position. And mm -hmm. especially the past few days where a lot of them have messaged me personally because we just won our first group sponsorship deal. A lot of them thought, you know, Eric, I really did not ever imagine I would be able to get any sort of like sponsorship fee because I just don't have a lot of downloads. 
And yeah. I think what you're doing, bringing this group together, we become like a peer group as well, where we support each other. We have like monthly meetups and we kind of, you know, we learn something about podcasting, but it's just a really good group of people. And I feel like I've created a really fun job that I love and I'm excited mm -hmm. about. And I feel like because of that, it's sort of just like stacking the odds that this is going to be successful versus yeah. other businesses that I've tried to really start in the past. But those were really just focused around making money. Yeah. They say it's like merging passion and, you know, what you can do for a long time equals success. So that's awesome. For people who want to reach out to you, maybe, you know, be on your podcast, where do they go? How can they find you and how can they connect with you? LinkedIn is my platform of choice. So just look for yeah. Eric Melkor on LinkedIn. That's the easiest way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for being on the show. And it was really great to chat with you about Innovators Can Laugh and your background and also living in Romania and being the startup ecosystem there. Thanks for having me, Andy. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this valuable, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast app. One more thing, Foreign Founders is a new podcast, so please consider leaving a rating or review. That helps more people find the show. See you on the next episode.